Imre Zeman is University Research Chair of Environmental Communication and Professor of Communication Arts at the University of Waterloo. He's also co-founder of the Petrocultures Research Group, a member of the International Panel on Behavior Change, and a fellow of the Canadian International Council. Over the years, his writing has made an enormous impact on my thinking, so I was thrilled to hear that he had decided to enter politics in this year's SNAP election. So he explains in this interview why he made that decision to embrace the challenges of campaigning. He was offered a rare opportunity to serve as the Green Party of Canada's senior climate critic and write radical, innovative climate policy to test the translatability, he says, of political theory in ways that he hadn't had a chance to before. I ask him about his sense that any radical plan for energy transition has to have a plan B, a game plan that doesn't just dismantle but rebuilds by attending to the needs of communities. This is different from what Zeman calls the trope of hope, a tendency that actually he feels ignores the reality on the ground. And part of that reality, crucially, is the fact of communication itself. And Imra notes that it hasn't gotten any easier to communicate about the environment in a way that encourages action. And while he admits he doesn't have any easy answers, he really stresses that we need to ask questions about what generates effective communication. Like, for example, is referencing the colossal, hard-to-cognize problem of the environment a better move than trying to appeal to the concerns of small, local collectivities? What does technology, or what Zeman calls technologically inflected revolutionary politics, communicate, if anything, about action and the need for revolutionary social change? Does technology in any way actually convey the need to move politically into a post-fossil fuel future? And if it doesn't, is that a fatal flaw? And we spend a lot of time considering these questions, but we also talk about the thought experiments in Kim Stanley Robinson's sprawling opus of a climate fiction novel, The Ministry for the Future. Imra expresses admiration for how Robinson deals directly with the messiness of the political rather than moving past all these conflicts and contradictions toward, you know, a convenient conclusion that replaces our chaotic system of capitalism with a better one. So while the mess, he says, can be dispiriting to look at, Zeman insists that this is what he wants to understand. And he's not alone. As he notes, there's never been a moment where the impacts of colonialism were more visible. The environment is, in a sense, being invoked as a new political actor, as an active agent in revolutionary politics. You know, this fact of a rising consciousness of a larger network or system that exceeds capitalism and that totally transcends human desire means that it has never been clearer that the world is inescapably interconnected. The first thing I want to do is kind of stress your particular impact on the field of energy humanities um, as it's sort of now known, this multidisciplinary field um, that is producing a lot of inventive uh, scholarship interventions on the climate crisis. And like whenever I think about your work in particular, which is, you know, quite fast, uh, I think about one essay, uh, like this essay, The Political Nature of Things that you wrote on David Suzuki. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in that essay, you give to me, to my mind, like a really um, eloquent articulation of what the energy humanities is sort of about. You say, 
engaging with problems that are embedded in the very structure of contemporary systems, political, social, economic, and ecological, or often all of these taken together, intellectuals who attend to structure make a radical and difficult demand on the publics to which they speak. Not that they vote differently or that they drive or consume less, but that they consider moving collectively in an entirely new direction, one whose form and outcome cannot be easily mapped or imagined concretely in advance. Um, that is a hard sell, I think, politically, it seems. <laughs> and, and like this discursive battle between the NDP and the Green Party in Canada over like the logistics of energy transition, exactly how it will happen and what can be preserved of the existing fossil fuel infrastructure has maybe never been more pitched. And so like it's in this context that I'm, I'm like a little bit shocked that you ran for office. You know, a person who believes in structural critique clearly and in moving entirely in a different direction. And so, you know, you end up running um, in Kelowna uh, for the Green Party seat. And I guess I wondered, you know, why or how you ended up running and how, you know, you brought your own sense of the need for like a massive overhaul, a dismantling of the system as it is to these these debates. I mean, was that difficult to do? Wow, Scott, you just get right down to the issues, don't you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks for that opening comment. I suppose I should just talk a little bit about the the phrase or the paragraph that you grabbed from the essay on, on David Suzuki, which is a sentiment and an argument that I've made in other places in different ways. And it's something that I've taken to saying more and more when I'm asked to speak about the energy humanities, a uh, field or movement for which I become a spokesperson uh, without ever intending to have done so. And what I've said recently and uh, vociferously is that in thinking about energy, I really am not interested in the dynamics of energy per se. Uh, it's, you know, I'm being a little bit coy there. But what I'm really interested in is how the specific problem of energy and other commitments that we've made, structural commitments, long-term commitments to specific modes of living, how those commitments suggest that what we're asking for when we think about attending to climate crisis is really um, revolution. The language that you read from the Suzuki article, which I, which I must admit I don't remember that specific language, when you read it to me, it sounded to me like um, somebody writing about um, politics. Somebody could have said those exact same things without any without saying anything about climate or about energy. It's about making deep changes of a kind that would produce some other kind of system entirely. Mm. Yeah, okay, a kind so, of abolitionist politics maybe as well. Absolutely. Or I suppose it's saying that the problem before us is of such a large degree that we're not going to do it within existing systems, especially within the, the time frame available to us. If indeed that's the demand that many on the left and many concerned with the environment are making. So then 
you ask a good question, which is how, if I'm asking, if I'm suggesting that what we need to do is something akin to political revolution of a, at a different, of a different sort at a different moment, one that didn't take into account climate, why would I join an established party in Canada? Um, and indeed a party that had seats prior to the most recent election and still has seats actually in parliament. So I can't, I can't protest and say that this is really a party that stands outside the, the majority and, and um, isn't actively participating in discussions around climate change in Canada. It is, I was asked to participate in the various debates of uh, those in each party that attended to environment. So you had to deal with, yeah, like political realism, like the Absolutely. norms of political civility and this kind of thing. Yeah. Absolutely. This was about stepping into a role that I don't know very much about in some ways. And I decided to do it for a couple of reasons. So one was that I was given the opportunity to be the climate critic for the Green Party as somebody with very limited um, time in the Green Party. So I kind of went to the top um, quickly um, from a new member to somebody that was arguably one of the uh, one or two most important people in terms of developing policy. And I, I couldn't resist the opportunity to um, do just that, shape policy for one of the parties in Canada and to see um, how an electorate responds sure. to that. A second thing is that I had long um, harbored, uh, I was going to say an ambition, but that's the wrong word. I had, I had wanted to see what the kind of work that academics do, especially academics broadly in the field of what could be called critical theory, what that kind of work, what that kind of political work, how that operates with a broader segment of the population. And I wanted to see if there was any translatability. And I mean, it, what did you find? I mean, it's such an odd transition in a way, academia to politics, and maybe one that shouldn't be as awkward as it sometimes is. And, I, you know, there's obviously a kind of problem of perceived or real elitism yeah. that limits voters, I think, from identifying maybe with like academics as political leaders. It's something that Kim Stanley Robinson has actually talked about, like he's taken issue with the broadness of that category elite you know, AOC has gone off at the Republicans for claiming that the Green New Deal is an elitist uh, document, right? It's hard to articulate radical demands, especially from that like academic position without, you know, while, while staying legitimately public, as you once put it in, in an article. Any thoughts on that, that question of expertise or, or, or elitism and how to negotiate that or how you negotiated that? One of the defining features of the shadow cabinet uh, for the Green Party for this past election is that it's uh, chock full of people with PhDs and, um, and professors and other experts in their field. And this was uh, a deliberate decision on the part of the then leader, Annamie Paul, to show that the Green Party was taking the issues seriously, perhaps more seriously than other parties. Um, in Canada, 
as in other countries that work with the parliamentary system, the ministers are appointed by the prime minister and often ministers of, will have no specific expertise in any given ministry. Um, mm -hmm. So she wanted to show off something else so that if there's, if there was somebody working, if you know, there's a minister of defense, we would have a shadow cabinet minister that was an expert in defense policy, for instance. Um, mm -hmm. That was deliberate. That was a way to show, especially in environment and in green um, transition and in natural resources that she was taking the issues as seriously as possible and she was putting experts in those areas. Now, I think, you know, that, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and I would say that um, in, in the Canadian context, I did not find that my constituents in um, Kelowna Lake Country, nor any of the journalists I've talked to during the, um, both during the campaign and before and since, had any issues with the, the idea of expertise. Um, mm -hmm. At least with that's with this specific position, they found it appropriate to have an expert on climate or on the environment discussing issues of the environment. Uh, nor did I have uh, any kind of pushback from any of the other candidates. So I don't know if it's a specific issue with respect to the environment, and there yeah, maybe yeah maybe there's some expectation that it makes sense now for a scientist or a social scientist to discuss these issues. But I was, I was very pleased to, to find that that wasn't the case. And if anything, there was some concession to points that I would make um, because there was some presumption that I knew something about them uh, more than the other members, uh, other people I was debating or um, competing against, which wasn't always the case, probably. Hmm. Um, one exchange I remember um, during an online panel that you take, took part in was really striking, um, where you kind of collided with some of like the impasses, I think, of political discourse. Um, so, you know, you were, uh, um, you know, running, uh, in, you know, contributing to a party that was sort of embroiled in this internal conflict and this controversy. Um, and after a panel discussion focused entirely on climate, a reporter, of course, uh, um, you know, intervened to try and you know, catch Anna Paul in, in her kind of, you know, in this apparent political snafu, right? And you absolutely tore into that reporter um, and saying, you know, you're, you're actually kind of hijacking an important discussion for this, you know, clearly um, kind of sensationalistic reason. And, and I thought that was so interesting that you didn't even engage with the question. You actually kind of, you know, um, uh, jumped in. And, and I guess like the, the question for me was like, what motivated, if you remember that intervention, like what motivated it? And why do you think like that gotcha politics thing is so antithetical to climate action? I remember it very well. This is a Toronto Star reporter that seems to have made his career over the past six months by being very attentive to the developments happening in the Green Party. And during mm -hmm. that uh, debate, um, which was nationally broadcast, he wanted to make sure to continue to play out his role. And I found it frustrating that he would play these um, professional games when the discussion was about something much more significant than that. And mm -hmm. I suppose I couldn't help anyone that knows me knows that 
sometimes I can't, perhaps can't shut up. And I just could, I just felt there was nothing to lose to mm-hmm. draw attention to precisely the the limits in discussions that should be taking place around these issues because other things emerge to the actors in a discussion, in this case, the journalist as more important. Um, Mm -hmm. And that just seemed to me to be uh, indefensible. Um, Yeah. yeah. It, it like rattled the discussion in a way that I thought was productive. And like, you know, I want to get to a discussion of uh, the Ministry for the Future, which is one of the two big books that I suggested we could talk about today. And that's something that happens at key moments in that text. Like, um, you know, uh, uh, an angry, traumatized person, you know, angrily interrupts this kind of, you know, uh, uh, this idle observation of the crisis. Um, that, that I think, is, is something that is refreshing, a kind of wake-up call. And something that, you know... Uh, the media, I think, has been utterly irresponsible uh, on in terms of like actually like fomenting the appropriate outrage. Um, you know, like the National recently in, in the reporting on COP26 is mostly like if you watch it, it's mostly touting its own climate coverage, mm. like its own mode of engagement, which is still obviously couched in what you call this techno utopian hope of like net zero by 2050, a thing they choose, I think, deliberately not to unpack because it's sort of too complex. It could turn your audience off. I don't know. Um, you know, I think the, you know, I feel as though these representational decisions matter. And and as a student of cultural studies, like I, I, I think that, you know, I don't want to dismiss these big events uh, like COP26 or, or just in general, you know, moments like this congressional hearing in which you know, major uh, uh, stakeholders, as it were, within the oil industry are being uh, uh, interrogated, in some cases shamed. Like to me, the the optics of these events kind of matter. Um, and I guess like I wanted to ask in, in terms of your own, um, you know, watching of the coverage of COP26, what is your sense of maybe what's different this time about uh, the discourse? Like this is the whitest cop ever, right. apparently due to the pandemic and the outsized decimation of poor countries. You've got like Greta Thunberg showing up with this hero's reception. Like this is a huge event. And I guess like, how are you decoding it right now? How one decodes it depends on the information one is getting about it. And so if, if, if uh, one is getting information by actors inside of it, that may be, fit your own political um, valence, you get one set of ideas about it. And if you get it through various kinds of media, you of course get another. Um, so that's that's just one thing I'll say about decoding it. I think that you have raised a, some really good, really good points, which is that this is about representation or this is about communication. At this point now, the environment is entirely about um, the struggle over what it looks like to take action and whether uh, what kinds of action are quote unquote realistic, which kinds of actions make sense in terms of um, economic practice, what which are kind of um, ira- supposedly irrational or irrelevant. Mm. This is, I feel like we're in this phase now where these are the kinds of things that are being played out and, and played out in a sophisticated way um, by everybody, by 
the oil industry, by right-wing newspapers like the National Post, even by um, right-wing parties in Canada. It has struck me, and I, I think others have said the same thing, that we're now in this um, this interregnum around climate, which is very different than there being climate deniers and the rest of us. Um, yeah. it, the U.S. might be the sole exception where there's some climate deniers, but for the most part, the political discussion has moved on to some kind of messy center that everybody is fighting over. And the center, of course, has is no. there's no such thing as a center, right? It looks like what you want it to look like and shape it by discourse. Hmm. So that center, into that center is being, is pushing uh, right-wing interests or um, even kind of center-right interests. And what it's doing is making the left appear to be uh, demanding too much, too fast. There's a recognition of the importance of climate, but then some attention to kind of who are adults in the room and who are not. And the National Post started the discourse about COP and about the environment in the election very early on. They started to have um, op-eds from uh, previously w w very right-wing columnists. I mean, they're still right-wing, but on the uh, environment. Um, and even some columnists who were uh, formerly in the oil industry, um, they had columns where they were saying, that absolutely, we have to do something about the environment. Climate change is real. Uh, anybody who doesn't think that is crazy. But, you know, and what comes after the but is the significant part. Yeah. You know, they were saying, let's be clear about how much reduction has to take place. Let, let's look at the reality of the Canadian economy and on and on and on. So we, COP26 comes at a period where... It's really uncertain where things are going to go, I think. Or let's just say how fast they'll go. That's the question. And, and, and certainly the focus of Ministry for the Future um, is, is this, you know, uh, um, disbelief at the, you know, the inaction of like governments globally in the face of even just, you know, un unbelievable uh, climate impacts that even after uh, you know, massive, spectacular, undeniable loss of life. There's still this this entrenched in action, um, and I I hope we can do kind of a close reading maybe of that book. Um, but I guess I want to ask you, you know, about the other what I take to be like the other big event um, in terms of the the optics perhaps of the climate struggle, and that is this congressional hearing, and whether you feel as though this this trial, as it were, is is more a form of just like political theater. Or something more real, a, a potential shift in the political climate. Um, you know, Holly Jean Buck, for example, talks in After Geoengineering about uh, a shift that sees more lawsuits, more shaming uh, of people who are implicated in the fossil industry, and and also dis divestment. Right? Mm -hmm. Do you do you see something like that congressional hearing primarily as political theater, or something you know bigger? I suppose, or is it just part of this like? this interregnum that's hard to define. My response is always going to be this unsatisfactory, like a little bit of both and a big mess somewhere in the middle. So it is certainly political theater. It will always be played out in that fashion. Um, the question is how this communicates to publics and how this communicates to, to policymakers, what this means to activist groups and to NGOs. 
So is it a mechanism by which to ameliorate the challenges that, that NGOs like 350.org, fossil fuel um, non-proliferation treaty organizations are making around the necessity to shut down fossil fuel right away? Or is it in fact a way of extending the fossil fuel industry for however, you know, however long it can, can go? Um, probably a little bit of both. I'm not convinced that the industry can be shamed. Um, there are there are individuals in the industry that can be shamed, but you know this is a this is a non-state actor that is made up of lots of individuals, shareholders, institutional shareholders. Um, it's it's harder to create to move a corporation around, or at least to make it feel bad. Right. Even even when you expose this long suppressed truth, right. Um, you know, like face the Facebook papers, like, are they really going to affect anything? Like, is this revelation mm -hmm. going to register as one? And I, I feel as though it won't. I mean, um, the, the idea that you're approaching the trial of these oil executives, um, in this kind of, uh, um, you know, we're suspending judgment. We're trying to maintain balance. Uh, like that, that makes this scene of political theater to me completely innocuous. Like, White Skin, Black Fuel, one of the books I, I mentioned we could discuss in, in the chapter Fortunes of Denial, charts climate misinformation and how these companies have been um, at the heart of it. And yet it's being treated as an allegation in, in these congressional hearings, right? And you have at the same time that it's being treated as, as a potential uh, accusation, um, the GOP accusing those that are you know putting these people on trial uh, of actually putting on trial an entire way of life. It may well be asking for them to be put on trial is precisely then the wrong messaging. Um, and then so one has to ask why that's happening. Is it the, the Democrats in the U.S. struggling to save their own skin as opposed mm -hmm. to taking action? It's, again, a kind of a delay tactic of kinds where, yeah, once again, this kind of information gathering, which, uh, which we know from a number of different books and sources, um, these industries have known for half a century. Absolutely. And, and, and so, you know, the question becomes in some ways, like how do you diagnose the production of like gridlock in this mm -hmm. space? Like, how does it happen? And I think that's part of what ministry for the future is, is about is, you know, like it, you know, Robinson explains, for example, the way the ministry works through these disciplinary divisions um, analysis and nothing more. Like you talk about this, in fact, in your Suzuki article, the problem of categorization and category errors um, in limiting our ability to set, sort of see the big picture. This is the argument that Robinson's making, especially in like chapter 25, this huge pivotal chapter um, where the inaction of the UN is imagined to be really based in its addiction to like scenario modeling mm -hmm. and so on. And, and like a, a kind of, you know, uh, um, endless deferral. Uh, on that point, I guess, I wanted to um, ask you about, um, you know, the the way in which Robinson in his books and, you know, in his sort of uh, uh, public communication approaches the question of technology, of science and technology, right? Like, because, you know, uh, it seems to me in your work, you're much more open to like the potential of science to liberate us but it seems like Robinson is like far more like dismayed by this sort of eco-socialist left that sees all technology as problematic. Yeah. 
Uh, and I wanted to ask you, I guess, about geoengineering and the rise of that in, uh, among the kind of eco-socialist left as a, you know, techno-utopian hope that is seen as like genuinely valid as a means out of uh, the crisis that we face. You know, are you kind of sympathetic to the use of technology to help us slam on the brakes when it comes to emissions? Let me, those are all fantastic questions. I have so much to say about, about all of them. Let, let me take this from a slightly different um, angle, and then we'll see if we can move back to some through some of those questions. So I, I'm, my new position is in environmental communications. Um, I've always been really, I, if I had to describe what I do, I do cultural studies um, in a kind of critical theory tradition. And I've long bridged the humanities and the social sciences. I don't think I could have just been a humanist. I, I am committed to certain kinds of knowledge production about um, social practices that I think are really valuable. Um, so now I'm in environmental communication. And what I've been learning about the field is not somebody, it's not a field that I've, I've uh, done my research in for most of my career, is that it's very hard to communicate about the environment in a way that generates action, um, whether it's action mm -hmm. by institutions or it's by it's by action by individuals. So, you know, if, if you were to read any articles about environmental communication, for the most part, they're despondent. You know, they'll be they'll be of the kind where um, some researchers will come and show um, 50 families how to uh, turn their appliances to a low energy saving mode. And then we'll come back a month later and find that maybe 10% of them have done that. And it, it takes no effort. doesn't take you to change your attitudes towards capitalism. It doesn't require you to become socialist, any of those things. It's just a small mechanistic change. Okay, so why, why I go at it this way is that technology is a tool, but it's also it also communicates very powerfully. And it does so with a special power, I think, in our society now. And I think one of the, whether you believe it's a solution or not solution, whether you think the technology itself offers some um, capacities, some possibilities vis-a-vis -vis the environment, the limit that I find always, or that the, what worries me about it is that what it communicates is that nothing has to be done socially. Nothing has to be done actually politically because whether uh, or not we manage to make the technological innovation now, down the road, scientists will save us from ourselves. Technology will come into play that will make it unnecessary to make the big changes. Um, we'll be able to have our giant Ford 150 truck, but now it'll be um, electric, you know, without any sense of then where the electricity mm -hmm. comes from. And so that to me is my fundamental, my, my real objection to technology is that what it communicates about action and what it communicates about the need to do what uh, you read to me from the, Suzuki, from the Suzuki article, the need to do that kind of revolutionary social change, which is to undo those commitments we've made to fossil fuels and other kinds of um, negative environmental practices. So just to kind of then go to these other sites. Now, the, the renewed commitments or interest in techno technologically um, inflected um, revolutionary politics that one finds 
say, in uh, Bastani's fully automated luxury communism or in um, Inventing the Future. Um, Xenofeminist Manifesto. Yeah. Wendy Liu has that book, Abolish Silicon Valley. It's about liberating technology. Yeah. That's right. So on the one hand, what could be more amazing to have these tools that now are put to one kind of use potentially to be put to another. But the, the movement from here to there, even to get people on board politically, is, is really what's at, at the heart of uh, technological messaging. Mm-hmm. So I, I like these um, manifesto-style books. Um, uh, their audience is quite limited to academics. So honestly, they're making an argument to academics about how the how the puzzle pieces fit together and how the num- numbers might run. I'm sorry to be so critical. Mm-hmm. If they're put forward to publics to say that there will be this incredible utopia without work, as long as you have faith in technology, the political part of it just evaporates. That's true. And it's really the mess of the political and communicating the political, which is the hard part now. You know, we're coming to this, uh, that we couldn't be in worse in a worse situation. Yeah, the pandemic has shown that technology is not itself transformative. That's like, right. It's just not. Yeah. Um, I, so I'll give you, like, we come to the necessity of dealing with the climate crisis um, after this protracted societal shift called neoliberalism. And one that is that is global. Um, we are have limited tools as a result to make the kinds of changes we need. Now, to me, it's not very political to say, um, let's have a green new deal, right? Hmm. Um, insofar as excellent, you know, looks great on paper. The politics of it is how do you get that to be activated? You know, there's there's the Green New Deal, of course, is either connected back. I mean, there's two different kinds of metaphors. One is, of course, to the to the old New Deal. Another one that has been trotted out a lot by people such as George Mambio is look at all the things we did for World War Two. Um, why can't we do that now? Right. A war mobilization footing is the yeah. argument. Yeah. So excellent. But who is the we that is being spoken to? Right. You know, this is always, I feel like the, the, the difficulty isn't to diagnose the problem. The difficulty that I'm, I'm kind of stuck with and trying to figure out with my colleagues is what, is what happens in the interim? So, you know, coming back to Kim Stanley Robinson's um, work, but let's just say Minister of the Future, I... What I really admire about the book is that it it actually, whether or not he has a specific interest in technology, which I think he does, um, it 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 attends to and it allows itself to be stuck in this really tricky morass. Yeah, the geoengineering, the way geoengineering is implemented, right? It's not just a slick. Geoengineering thing. happens in a in a flash. Yeah. it's not discussed over. Um, but then you have, you know, I, I, what I, when I try to describe the book to people, I say, um, uh, sorry, you know, jokingly, oh, he explains how um, federal banks manage to create a situation that can deal with 
climate change. Okay. So if you mm-hmm. say it like that, it's not very sexy. No. But the fact that he's willing to go there and think through it. Yeah. Um, and think through it. And along the way, I mean, what's, what's so rich about the book is that it's, it's an assembly of a ton of voices. There's mm. a through thread, mm-hmm. but it comes into focus fairly like not that often actually between um i voices describing their situation um some quite i think some brutal critique towards a certain kind of left political practice in the chapter on davos Mm -hmm. um which is also hilarious um you know it, it does it end with wind powered um technologically efficient sailboats taking us across the ocean so they don't generate um, electricity or with zeppelins or things like this. Yes, but I don't think those are the drivers in that book. Those are not the drivers of the change. No. That the fact that he even chooses to position the book, the narrative, in a yet-to-be-developed UN ministry that from the get-go, those in the ministry feel is it's a little bit of a ruse. They don't really have the resources they need. It's unclear how they can convince uh, other leaders or um, other agencies what to do. And so they have to find this complicated way to do it. So I don't see that book, which I admire, I admire greatly. I don't see it using technology in the way that, um, that is, that it's used in fully automated luxury communism or inventing the future. Both, both I should I should say I'm not being dismissive of these books. No, no. But I feel that the I want more of the mess of the political that I don't know how to right. describe. Yeah, those books feel oracular. Yes. It's part of where we're stuck with the environment. Um mm-hmm. I read and again admired this new short book by Benjamin Bratton called The Revenge of the Real. Yeah. That's a great I think book. the subtitle is called Politics for a Post-Pandemic World. And um, it, it is meant to be essayistic. And the argument there in relationship to um, COVID, what would have been the better approach to COVID, but also by extension, what would be a better politics moving forward is kind of what he calls a positive biopolitics. Okay, so Bratton doesn't, doesn't mind um, facial recognition. Um, he doesn't mind many kinds of things. It's kind of this sense of um, if you have the right kind of biopolitics, you get you get places. You know, mm-hmm. and I and I agree with him insofar as there's been a tendency to view biopolitics as always already negative, and I don't think that holds up in the latter Foucault, where he's describing the emergence of a system. Okay, so all 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 well and good. Um, what I kept writing in the margins of that book is hmm. you know. Who runs it? Like, how do you make sure it's the right kind of people? How do you make sure it's not the Chinese state? Um, how do you how do you get from here to there? Like, again, it's that it's making an argument to um, readers of verso texts like me, who loves who loves being in the space of these ideas, and um, I I couldn't think without um these kind of interlocutors but it does get to the conclusion quickly 
or it does produce like yeah. a, a sense of, um, of, of some missing elements that when I look at more like kind of just more left inflected social science, they're trying always in these kind of microwaves, um, kind of like micro narratives of how is it that somebody, rea- how, how is it that a community reacts to this narrative? Um, what happens when you introduce solar, like my, my colleague, Jamie Cross at uh, University of Edinburgh, he's done a lot of work in Africa about the, um, the implementation of solar power um, by international agencies in um, small communities and previously off the grid communities, um, which sounds great. But then what unfolds is very compelling if you actually look on the ground, especially as those agencies very often bring in private industry um, after the fact to kind of run things. So, you know, it's that kind of like that mess on the ground that can be very dispiriting to look at is to me um, what I want to know about. And, and you know, kind of, kind of come back to the question of the Green Party. Uh, I suppose then there's, there's two mechanisms that I'm thinking are two kind of angles that are, I'm not sure how they're going to come together because I'm not sure they did during the election. So one is this conceptual philosophical um, attention to political forms, um, analyses of the inadequacy of current forms and the elaboration of ones that would be better, which we could not do without. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that part of it. How do I bring that together with all of the challenges and with the recognition that if everything went right, the end point um, would still be different than diagnosed in fully automated luxury communism, right? So, yeah, so, and and I am, Kim Stanley Robinson is pretty good about that as both a work of theory and perhaps a practice. Yeah, dwelling with the messiness of it. Like, this is something that Angela Davis says that she appreciates most about feminist thought, that it troubles our neat analyses, she says, that it makes us deal with a messy world. I'm quoting her. It makes us recognize social realities that don't always reflect the neatness of our analytical categories, and that we have to be willing to try to begin to approximate the messiness of social reality. Like, I I hear you saying that, like, there has to be a kind of um, a kind of feminist pragmatism to our political analysis too, um, that doesn't, as you say, kind of jump to the conclusion. And yeah, I mean, like this is what I really appreciated about uh, white skin, black fuel. This this large uh, analysis of the relationship between anti climate politics of the far, the anti climate politics of the far right and denialism, and the material interests of dominant classes. Like that's mm-hmm. a kind of messy analysis that. Um, you know, tries to, as it says, as they say in the text, develop a, um, a reading of the political eco- uh, ecology of the far right, which they see as, as sorely lacking, right? Um, what was your sense of like the moves that book makes in terms of especially sort of um, indicting the capitalist class for being, you know, of the mind that the erasure of oil is life-threatening, you know, like there, there's this also, I mean, in that, I'll say one more thing, like there's also in that, in that text, this sense that, you know, Trump is not an anomaly, right? He's the ubiquitous face of anti-climate uh, politics, uh, but he's, he's uh, not reflective rather of a Republic, Republican eccentricity or even a Trumpian idiosyncrasy. Um, and I guess like, 
um, in terms of trying to understand the messiness of these collusions, um, you know, do you think we're guilty of the same kind of individualistic thinking in Canada, perhaps like vilifying Trudeau in the way that we do? Um, you know, is there this universal tendency per, perhaps to just focus on loud leaders and how they affect the popular capacity to see this system of capitalizing basically on waste as, you know, emerging at a particular moment in the history of capitalist modes of production? Um, you know, do we focus basically too much on the Trumps and Trudeaus and forget the messiness of these political ecologies? All I can say is yes, absolutely. Um, if one had to do a mapping, and um, there are projects that have done this kind of mapping, I'm thinking of, uh, I'm going to get the name wrong, but there was a mapping project of West Coast political power and political actors in relation to fossil fuels run out of the University of Victoria by William Carroll, who uh, was a professor there. And he had a, a co-leader that was a member of the Canadian um, Center for Policy, um, policy, what is it, analysis, policy, CCPA, mm -hmm. out of um, the BC office. So that was part of the work they wanted to do precisely to get to that kind of messiness, to look at all of the different actors that are um, in the political ecology. Um, the commitments that the Liberal Party has, to, just as one small example, the commitments that the Liberal Party has to oil and to natural, natural resource extraction are as deep um, as the Conservative Party. And that focus on the principal actors, um, so in this case, it might be towards the Conservative Party leader in Canada, means that they, the party that has been in power the most over the last hundred years in Canada, the Liberal Party, and which is effectively the government, so they're almost one and the same, um, there's not very much interrogation of uh, what they do at that kind of state um, actor level. The, the movement back and forth between industry and government is also something I don't think Canadians um, attend to very much. Nor is there a, a sense that the production of knowledge is connected deeply to political processes, um, especially in political science, in, in a way I think is better known in the US. So there is this kind of broad elite Organ, like bureaucratic organizational class in Canada um, that eludes analysis by, by Canadians themselves uh, to a lesser degree within the academy. But it's that organization that makes it hard to undo what's happening um, in Canada vis-a-vis -vis, um, climate change. Canada is an abysmal, abysmal actor on climate. It is the only G20 country since the Paris Agreement not to have reduced its greenhouse gas emissions at all. And we've been flatlined for about 20 years. Yeah, we've lost any kind of credibility. It's true. Yeah. And yet, here we are at the beginning of COP20. Yeah. And Trudeau is suddenly the hero of the moment, seemingly out of nothing, because he comes across, I think he comes across the world, of course, the way he looks and his affect, but also there's this kind of sensibility, especially in terms of um, aesthetics yeah. and how one 
how Canadians hold themselves in the world that we're Scandinavia. We're a, a variant of Scandinavia. I'll just say one other thing that kind of comes back to uh, Malm and the Zetkin Collective's book, um, which is specific to Canada, and that is the problem called Alberta. And Alberta is is a important uh, heat sink for the rest of the politics of the country in relationship to resource extraction. So as long as Alberta is um, messy, domineering, right wing, then all attention is there and not everywhere else. It's not where it's not on the Toronto Stock Exchange. It's not on institutional actors. Um, it becomes the only problem. And it's it's a problem both for its own internal politics, but really what it does uh, to the rest of the country. And I was thinking a lot when I was reading the book about whether the comments and the analyses that uh, are made in white skin, black fuel about fascist and populist politics um, in various countries, they don't look at Canada or the US, whether it works in the Canadian case, especially with Alberta, and it's it's trickier. It would require some real thinking through, and that's something I'm sort of in the, at the beginning points of doing. Yeah, there, I mean, it sounds like there are all of these different like polarities or something. There's you know polarization, but it's 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 a dizzying sort of polarization in Canada where you know they 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 on uh, at the end of white skin black fuel they talk about Trudeau as doing the denialist, cognitively dissonant, but apparently totally manageable work of a capitalist state in one person. Mm. They say basically like, you know, this is a person who will say to, to investors, we're going to develop all available resources without hesitation, while also saying that all of the right things about the environment, right? And they say like that that is iconic of the kind of contemporary you know, petrocultural leader, you know, and, and I wonder, like when I was reading that, uh, you know, is it even effective to expose the idle, idleness of, of dialogue, of, of earnest, you know, uh, discourse over, over climate change? Like there's now this Greta Thunberg gave this speech in which, you know, she's kind of using this dismissive mantra of treating all conversation as pointless by saying, blah, 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 net zero, blah, 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 you know, is that potentially dangerous? I want to get in a second to the question of whether, and, and mom has written about this and so and many others, at a certain point in the impasse over energy transition, violence becomes necessary. Like this seems to be almost the implication now of a lot of this kind of discourse. And it's certainly, you know, of course, throughout Ministry for the Future. What do you think is is at stake in that dismissive mantra of treating all conversation about this as like, just blah, 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 just white noise. I hope that that's not what Thunberg is doing in the end, but um, I can see that's happening. I think it's it was actually more of a, a journalistic dismissal of what was going to come out before anything happened, more mm -hmm. than, um, I think, on the behalf of NGOs and activists. But um, kind of day one, uh, sort of like hour minus one of COP, the Guardian said, effectively, like, "Oh, and nothing's going to be accomplished here. Um, it's the end of it's the end." Um, mm. Well, it's it, doesn't, the end. it doesn't really 
help Ouch. to to start there. Um, I, I think that there has to be some. You know, here's here's where here's where philosophy does come back in, and here's where communications come come back in. Um, there's not much attention to what generates effective communication. It's still at the point where there's a lot of data circulating. You know, if mm-hmm. if we don't do this reduction by this time, it produces a certain um, increase in temperature. Okay, I spend my I read about this every day. I'm not still sure what that means for anything. Like I kind of feel like if I understood that there's still going to be basically liberal capitalism um, on the horizon. You know, mm-hmm. maybe maybe it'll be center-right and that'll be like decent, a decent way to live for some of us. So that's one thing. If one says that nothing's going to come out of it or it's blah, 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 that's also a communication strategy that is ultimately intended to have an audience. Is that audience decision makers? Is it publics? I think the people that are left out of this are actually publics, um, that there's this kind of protracted struggle on the part of decision makers over what kind of knowledge should be put to to use in managing this op, like knowledge object called the environment, which has always been about data and about lots and lots of people producing data to learn about it, to manage it. Um, to think about which actors have legitimacy in managing it. So it's still that kind of struggle amongst not, like whatever the public is, you know, very, you know, you and I know it's a kind of a suspect category, but nevertheless, right. this kind of sense of citizenry making decisions, that's mm-hmm. not where all of this is. That's not what this is communicating. And I don't think there's much attention to that way of, like getting some kind of action that would be perhaps local in a very real way that would be about connecting people who have been disconnected through social media networks, but also neoliberalism that may have nothing to do about the environment, this giant kind of problem that would be producing political networks that are distinct from this, this kind of bigger network. So blah, blah, blah is, is a strategy within a kind of struggle over knowledge systems. Um, is it an expression of what, like broad disconnect or discontent? I'm not sure about that. Let's just say I nobody made her a spokesperson. That's right. Um, yeah. You know, so so I think I do think still there's this uh, discursive struggle, communicative struggle. A lot of that discourse, discursive struggle, is not well thought through. Um, it's perhaps best thought through by those on the right who have been paying attention to this now for again 50 years of neoliberalism there they really have spent time on how you get publics to accept your point of view um, so they are likely to have success in their work on the on climate um, maybe already these kinds of discussions are about that it's about governments making decisions about what works for them. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I personally really like that. I think it's just as, it's energizing. And it reminds me of something, you know, Judith Butler said when I interviewed her, that it's not decided yet, right? 
um, I kind of frame the question as though the the pandemic was over and that, you know, the capitalist system had come back in and, and kind of reimposed a, a system of exploitation. And she, she kind of just stressed that it's not decided. Um, and to me, that is is energizing. Like, it's something Robinson talks about in like his interview with the Dig podcast, this idea of, um, you know, working together on a discursive battle, you know, and, and you know, navigating a world in which words themselves are kind of increasingly abstract. Society is increasingly vi- visual. And so images become really crucial as a way of making these things tangible and visible. And you like you see that obviously in Ministry for the Future, but you even see it in White Skin Black Fuel. Like they say at the very beginning of that book that the goal is projection, extrapolating and speculating on the possible political climates of the future rather than like just substantiating the reality of the emergency, the emergency we face. Um, so, you know, they're trying to actually invent metaphors, images, ways for people to understand the pressure cooker that they're in. Um and, and even like going as far as to say every metaphor of the climate crisis fails to do justice to its object while at the same time trying to do just that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I wanted to ask you, like, to go back to uh, Ministry for the Future, like, you know, there has been this huge explosion of like climate fiction of cli-fi um, as a means of, of, of you know, generating um, a complex awareness on, on the, you know, um, among various publics. But I guess I wanted to ask, like, how do you account for the ways in which it seems like like visual culture lags behind climate Mm -hmm. fiction? You know, like Robinson refers to the famous adage of like it being easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Is there more room for that imagining within climate fiction? That's an interesting question. So there's there's two different things that you're saying there. So one has to do with. how whether there's visual representations Mm -hmm. um, akin to climate fiction and the other is about whether climate fiction can um i guess imagine imagine the end of capitalism Mm -hmm. yeah that's the the object to which is trying to do justice i suppose is like an actual rendering of this transformation of the banking system for example right the the idea of a carbon coin transforming the globe these kinds of things I think in the case of Robinson, that may be that may be true. Um, I'm not sure a lot of other climate fiction that I know of um, is very attentive to capitalism, except in a indirect way. Mm-hmm. Um, capitalism becomes kind of the present, or it becomes the way we live now, or it becomes an unfeasible system, um, mm-hmm. but not distinct as a ideological um political economic practice it's just kind of the the commitments that were made to a specific kind of life with all of its problems consumerism and so on they don't necessarily uh, bizarrely are not tied to to capitalism per se so Mm. um they i would say climate fiction again i'm massively overgeneralizing but for the most part still tends to be somewhat dystopian and perhaps it's in the dystopian gesture that there's a bit of a kind of false consciousness about the inability to render capitalism as the messy thing that might linger afterward 
or which you have to kind of move past and it's not going to give you the satisfaction of rendering some entirely new system. Um, I, I think, I think um, Robinson is more aware of that. I mean, in, in Ministry of the Future, there's still capitalism. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not it's not any kind of end of work society at all. Yeah, and and that's a conscious choice, right? Yeah, he talks about the need to provide a credible path, a credible path forward. And like, again, I feel like we're coming back to this rift between the NDP and the Green Party. The notion of yeah. a credible path forward, it, it kind of contradicts the, again, the claim in the Suzuki piece about a future that we can't necessarily anticipate, like, or know the contours of in advance. Um, you know, this is, this is a text that's valuable in some ways because it's, it's, as he puts it, utopian fiction that's trying to make things uh, better in tangible ways. Like it's, yeah. it's digestible in these ways, right? Um, and he talks about like the audacity of that in some ways. Um, and you know, it, it is, it is audacious. And I would say like one of the things that's maybe audacious about it is its depiction of, of violence. And, and, you know, while this makes the text in some ways dystopian, um, you know, uh, uh, there are those who imagine that, uh, this kind of counterviolence is potentially the only way out that the ruling classes will not be persuaded. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess I wanted to, ask you about this because it's definitely like not a thing you I don't I don't see it appearing in your work yeah. um an engagement with the question of political counterviolence. yeah um do you want to just general I mean I I could frame the question but do you want to just kind of give your general attitude I guess toward like revolutionary violence as a source of liberation sure so I haven't attended to it specifically, or even other kinds of, I don't, I don't specific tra- mm-hmm. political trajectories to date, because I just haven't given it enough attention. I think um, I will say this though about Mom's version of it, which is that I, I feel that it's also uh, he makes an interesting case mm-hmm. for the necessity of violence. Um, there are some presumptions in there which I'll talk about in one minute, which I think are the like important ones to foreground, perhaps again, as like, maybe this is the real politics that's lying, lying behind this kind of call to violence. It's similar to uh, automated luxury communism in a way that might surprise you to hear me say that. Uh, Sorry, the problem is the following, you know, things have to happen um, on a very short, in a very short time frame, mm-hmm. you have to be committed enough to whatever it is that you're is the end goal, in order to commit yourself to a, a politics which is a politics of speed. That's that's the that's the uh, where violence comes in, right? The necessity of generating something quickly, and in relationship to a problem that is perceived. Right. Let's just blow it up. Yeah. So so having said that. Um, I do feel that it's a little bit, um, and I'm actually thinking of the COVID book uh, where he, in the last chapter, he articulates this sense of violence of revolutionary practice um, for the the first time, uh, followed by the How to Blow Up a Pipeline book. Um, There's this sense that of elaborating like what you should do on the basis of the um, conceptual issues of the moment. So, you know, this won't work, that won't work, time has to be factored into it. 
And so um, what what we need in the COVID book kind of ends up being like it would it would the best way to do this is we have a kind of uh, Lenin Leninist um, political state that we get to by immediately like kind of destroying all the existing um, capitalist bureaucracies on the planet. And we finally get to that state, we can act with the speed that we need to because we have a singular government. You know, and then there's always this sense because again, it's a to some degree a political philosophy experiment. That's not meant as a criticism at all. That's mm-hmm. what it is. Um, I always have these c- kind of questions again in the in the uh, you know side notes, kind of like who guarantees the um, decisions made by that government? Um, how do I know it's going to do the right things? Uh, what evidence do current totalitarian governments give to us about their um, actions or previous ones? You know, um, there's this sense that a certain kind of government will make the right decisions after some kind of action happens. And so I I guess I think you can't uh, theorize the violence. I think it happens in outside of the the pages of a verso book. I'm being a little bit too... Uh, <laughs> polemical uh, <laughs> polemical i don't mean it that way no i but the people who write about violence their ears are all pricking up yeah yeah um <laughs> i think it's absolutely you know every kind of practice is good to look at i'm i'm a, a scholar i want to understand what others are doing and why they're doing it and how it fits into specific systems and the idea of a kind of a generalizable set of principles or um kind of invocations to violence i don't know if it's a if it's a feasible political practice yeah i mean it's hard right i think back to um elizabeth colbert appearing on uh the ezra klein show to talk about her book under a white sky and you know klein uh, you basically asks colbert the same question like if we are at this impasse and it's clear that we're not moving fast enough um, do we not just have to dismantle the social license of fossil fuel corporations, but the material stuff of oil-based economies? And she kind of, in the same way you sort of pleaded scholar there, um, pleads journalists. She puts it in those terms um, and says, like, it's really not my job uh, to to speculate on when violence is necessary. Um, and I, that's what I hear you kind of saying. But at the same time, like, well, I, I would you're, say you're like leaving some room there, right? I think so. Yeah. I, I, what I would say is the speculation doesn't generate the violence. Mm. So my, my own activity might do that, mm-hmm. but then I, it would be, I would want to create a revolutionary party. You know, I would want to create some kind of group of individuals whom I could do the violence with. Mm. Um, I would have to have some basis for it. I mean, we do, there's a great, um, we have a great case study in, in a sense in Canada, which is Weibo Ludwig. Violence against um, fossil fuel extraction sites around his community, um, a religious community, a deeply conservative religious community who takes it upon himself because he doesn't want his family, his extended family injured. So there's a case of violence, which on its own doesn't guarantee the politics of the violence. You know, so mm-hmm. what Ludwig has is a very patriarchal religious society they're definitely insiders and outsiders. It doesn't accept everybody into it. It's a bit, it's off grid. It doesn't, it's not inclusive. So we have, we have examples of violence against, um, against pipelines. 
against um, facilities, um, they don't necessarily all cohere into something that is again that is about the environment. They're about, at least to date, they're about or about climate change. They're about impacts on communities. They're very, very specific. Um, they're not coordinated. It doesn't appear that they would be coordinated. Um, so maybe I'm pleading journalist a bit, but I would say it a little bit differently, which is that if right now I have two hats, one is a politician and one is a, an academic. Mm-hmm. And um, we started this discussion by trying to think about how, how or talking about how I see them together. Mm-hmm. Um, part of what I see in the political sphere is the kind of action that Ezra Klein um, demands. If one looks at the policy, the pa- platform that I developed, which, which I will say in advance of telling you what it what it's about, was never challenged as being irrational or ridiculous or or, or so out of measure that it couldn't be. I, I couldn't participate as an expert in discussions. Nobody said it was you know it showed my inexpertise in these matters or that I was a bad. Um, politician, the very first thing it says is that all extraction in Canada should start, should stop as of 2023. Something demanded by activist groups, but actually also demanded by the International Energy Association as of, as of late. So that's a radical action that would have consequences for, for industry that would, in a sense, blow it all up. But it comes with a part B, which is that um, you attend to the needs and the impacts on those communities and the workers that are affected. Otherwise, there's no, there's going to be no buy-in. The violence is going to be in the other direction. Hmm. If the demand is about speed, there are ways to speed things up. Speed isn't. Um, necessarily generated by violence, which I'm not saying that it it might not, if it's done on a mass scale, um, speed things up. Though, again, I'm not sure that it would have the results that one might expect um, insofar as violence does not always kind of end up reinforcing one's own political position. No. But if speed is an issue, there are possibilities for undertaking that kind of speed. And they're done in a bureaucratic apparatus, in a classic um, neoliberal state. I mean, there's other elements of the green platform that are, uh, you know, left social justice framings of political issues. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're organized around the good state. I don't think I'm offending any of my colleagues in, in discussing it that way. I completely support that. Um, but it does, it is a belief in the state as being, um, if not the sole actor, then an intermediate actor in addressing climate change uh, on both the on the scale and the speed required. Mm-hmm. The decision about speed then comes down to to electorates, um, or the decision about speed maybe is part of the discussion that happens at places like COP and which might inform political decision making. And, and I wonder, you know, and uh, the only other question I guess I wanted to ask in relationship to speed is whether or to what extent you think it's possible in the 
current moment where we clearly are still, I mean, the pandemic has has shown the ways in which nations are willing to garrison their borders. Um, you know, the, the coming um, waves of climate refugees, like where are these people going going to go? Like, I wonder at this moment whether it's whether you think it's possible to think in a truly global way about climate change, because, you know, something Mike Davis has pointed out is that the, the difference with the pandemic is that it is immediately um, torpedoing markets globally. It needs to be solved because the system is is disrupted. Whereas, you know, climate change is something that in large part we can defer because it is afflicting, you know, uh, nations in the global south. Um, you know, one of the things certainly that white skin, black fuel argues that, is that racism inspires indifference to the problem of climate change. And yet fossil fuels represent, as they as they put it, the apogee of domination. So, you know, if if we're in the context where a certain kind of like uh, racist nativism and fossil fascism is willing to just flatly deny all of it and double down, like, do you have any hope that it's possible to both decarbonize and decolonize, you know, that it's possible to rely on a white settler state, a colonial state to go profoundly in a different direction? Or, you know, are we, are we doomed to this, I guess, like racist categorization that, that doesn't allow for the connections to be made between immediate climate impacts um, in, in the Caribbean, for example, and the more abstract nature of the threat in Canada, which of course is no longer as ab- abstract, given the nature of the, you know, the heat dome, the unprecedented heat dome that um, hit, of course, Western Canada. But, you know, do you think that these these distances, that these perceived distances between nations, peoples, communities, are collapsing in the context of the climate emergency, or in fact just getting more strengthened? The hard question to end things, right? Yeah, um, kinda, yeah. I would say that there has, I'll try to address this as best I can. I don't like the um, trope of hope. Sure. Um, I think that that, again, has a a specific kind of communicative practice, Mm -hmm. which is not about analysis or is not about um, kind of looking at the reality on the ground. Um, Hope that realism isn't the substitute for hope. It's just that I think hope is has a specific politics that I'd like to avoid. Um, I would say that I'm not sure that there has ever been a moment when the reality of colonialism and its impacts have ever been as visible. Mm. Um, That there is precisely discussion about the responsibilities of the global North, the global South. There is attention to the way in which this history of um, natural resource extraction has made one part of the world um, very wealthy at the expense of the rest of the world. One of the framing ideas of whatever it is that became environmental humanities is that there's this incredible apparatus that made it possible for there to, to be an epistemic blindness to um, petroculture to petromodernity, even as it had a deep ontological, um, in, like ontologically shaped modernity. And that epistemic blindness 
which is it's it's an odd one because it's kind of like you obviously know and then of course you you don't know mm. um is starting to wither away um if somebody in the 1970s um post 1973 in the US let's say it's 79 or something had to tell you how the US made its money it would of course have a sense of movies like giant and others where there's like people in oil fields and make a lot of cash and some of that cash comes for free and that's fine but they wouldn't fundamentally see that as what the US is about and now i think it's much more prevalent we talk about energy we talk about big oil day to day it's part of the news cycle now mm-hmm. um i think people recognize that i i'm not saying i think i know it is the way that the world is connected together is much more visible and the necessity of action on the part of one part of the world to help the rest is, is super clear. Mm -hmm. There's no, there's no discourse about Mauritania um, doubling down in order to help the U S. So then the question is really, where does one like move the goalposts so that it's easier to get to the, to the finish line. Wow, that's a mixed metaphor there, right? <laughs> but what are the tactics? And, yeah, what are, what's the play? Yeah, what are the tactics? What's going to happen? And, you know, again, coming back to the Suzuki, which you, which um, I'm glad you started with. Mm-hmm. I, my response to your, your use of the Suzuki is that really this was, a, you're talking about political revolution. And maybe the mistake is that the focus on the environment is the wrong one to achieve the ends of changing society to get to environmental change. The environment is something like, or can be something like, um, a tool to produce that change that we've, we've always wanted, those of us on the left, and to insist that it has to happen quickly because it's no longer just about human actors that will be damaged, but some other larger network system, you know, creature called Gaia that's going to be acted. It's it's as if this kind of this new actor has come into revolutionary politics. Mm. And it may be that that's taking us in directions that we might not have anticipated. So if we look at it that way, we have a situation now where lots of the forces that shape contemporary political life are on display as never before. This language of climate crisis has made that happen. And maybe now the the direction to go is not towards advocating for geoengineering um, in the way some on the left do um, and lots on the right do, but to go back and think about what are the kinds of political changes we want, where do we get there? So with that in mind, perhaps violence should not be towards fossil fuel, um, like towards oil refineries or towards pipelines, though that happens as well. That gets one kind of change and maybe not the other. I suppose what I'm saying here is that there's this sense to me in the environmental movement that when you solve the environment, you then get like a social world that's already framed in social justice terms. And maybe it has to go the other way around. And maybe that means conceding lots of pain to the world. And maybe it means not getting us to the point we want. 
So maybe we need to do decolonization more than decarbonization, that maybe the two don't go together. These are at least some of the things I'm trying to, to figure out. Um, that and this odd situation I've thrown myself into, which um, is a schizophrenic one of um, both being a member of a political party and still being a member of a political party at a high level and having to advocate for the um, positions of that party and also being a cultural critic who may not agree with some of those same positions or may see them as limited to the to a kind of liberal democratic uh, series of politics. I say that only because I have never been, I've never felt a purism about politics in that sense. I think you go at it at every angle you can. I'm not the one that has to do all of the political maneuvering in the whole world. I have lots of colleagues. I can, I can play both sides. This is an interesting moment for me. I, I'm, it's taken me in places I hadn't expected, this kind of dual personality. I think it would be great if a lot of my colleagues um, in, who know about critical theory would be in parliamentary politics. Hmm. I don't see why that's an issue. Um, I don't think it has to be one or the other. Um, yeah, and it's so exciting to be able to like think through or hear you think through this and talk to you about these things. Like, uh, it sounds like you know you're facing yourself this kind of un indeterminate path. Like, you don't exactly know how to navigate it, and it's just it's energizing to hear you kind of um, work through that. And I guess like also I wanted to say like, um, you know, it's 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 exciting to hear you talk about the this feeling of being divided between hope, which you see is politically primarily about like you know, triggering, I think, you know, the dopamine hit of just reassurance and, you know, preying on people's fear and despair. You know, like it's, it's, it's difficult to kind of navigate those, those two extremes. And yet that's precisely what I think environmental communication is, is trying to do right now. Um, anyway, I could talk to you forever, uh, but I won't keep you any longer. Thanks so much for making the time. Thanks so much for inviting me. It was fantastic to talk to you. 